Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Pete Finn and I am a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics at Kingston University and this is the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. Um, on the podcast today we are going to be discussing an issue which um, both relates to the long term of UK politics in that the issues we're going to discuss are probably going to play out at least over the next few years if not longer um, and but they also uh, relate to the last few years of British politics in that and um, part of the way in which we're going to be discussing um, the issue is uh, with relation to Brexit um, what we're going to be talking about is food security and how the pandemic um, and Brexit intersect with that issue um, with me today to discuss that issue is my department colleague, Dr. Ronald Ranta, who has written a paper entitled Pandemics, Food Insecurity and Leaving the EU. What does the COVID-19 pandemic tell us about insecurity and Brexit? Which was co-written with another Kingston University scholar, Hilda Mulrooney. And it was published just this month in the open source journal, Social Sciences and Humanities Open. And we'll put all the information about the um, about that publication in the show notes, so re listeners can go and get hold of it. It's an open uh, it's open access to publication, and I really would recommend that um, you go and read it. It's really very interesting reading indeed. Um, before we move on to discussing that, just to give a sense of where we are in the UK, um, the UK currently has. Um, 4.28 million confirmed cases, so the likely number is um, probably higher than that, almost certainly. Um, deaths in the UK are 126,000 so far, and that is still remains the, the highest count comparatively of any major country. As with recent weeks, the largest bright spot in the UK um, in the response is the vaccine rollout and over 25 million people now in the UK have had a, at least one dose of the vaccine which is obviously fantastic news and we have also thankfully got falling numbers of both cases and fatalities. Um, so thank you very much for coming on Ronald, um, it's great to have you on the podcast again. Thanks for having me. Um, you're very welcome. Um, so before we move on to discussing the specifics of the last year and what they might or might not mean moving forward. I just wondered if you could give listeners a sense of what the state of food security and insecurity was in the UK prior um, to the pandemic. Sure. I guess questions about food security in the UK or in general are difficult to kind of answer. In many ways, it really depends on the kind of indicators you focus on and whether you look at the state as a whole, or you look at households or look at particular segments of the population. I guess there's a few things we can say. So to start with, there haven't been any food shortages in the UK. However, you can look at a number of key food security issues, particularly the household level, which has been, have been persistent. In general, one of the major problems is the UK produces only around 50 to 60% of what it consumes. So roughly speaking, just under a half of everything we eat is imported. And of that, over half of what we import comes from the EU and much of what we import not from the EU comes through the EU. 
The second point is that there have been very large pockets of deprivation in the UK. And we have seen over the last decade, particularly since 2010 and the implementation of austerity measures, an alarming increase in the use of food banks and food charities. We can come later to why exactly that's the case. I think the last point is that the UK also suffers from some of the highest levels per population among rich countries of malnutrition, obesity, and food poverty, particularly among children. And this is particularly when you compare the UK to many other countries in Europe. And this was all pre-pandemic. Okay, all right. Um, that's really interesting. Uh, so I guess to a certain extent, my next kind of sub-question that is almost a moot point, given that you've explained that the, the impact on children and the, the, the kind of volumes of food um, coming through the EU. So what, why beyond, I guess, those who are directly affected, why is this of general concern? So beyond the obvious you mentioned of children and household not having enough food to eat and not enough nutritious food to eat, you can say that particularly with regard to the pandemic, but also more generally speaking, it's the direct impact this has on health. So this is something that is well known and is both at government level and international level, something that WHO has written about quite a lot about it. We know that poverty, poor diets, uh, lack of nutrition, obesity are all linked with increased rates of long-term health problems. We can think of things like um, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular diseases. So for example, and now I'm slightly jumping, if we think about COVID and why the UK has such a high level of mortality and also hospitalization compared to some other developed countries, definitely this is something that WHO has come out with. I think also the, the UK Obesity Council is that diets, uh, consumption habits, and obesity in the UK have had a direct impact on hospitalization and mortality. So if you want, food security is directly related to the health of the country. And this, if you want, also relates to how we deal with pandemics, future pandemics, and other health issues. Okay, that's great. So very clearly, it's not just a, I mean, obviously it's tragic for the individuals concerned, but it's also, clearly of direct concern to the, the, the rest of society. But, um, very, very good, thanks. Um, and so how have debates around food security and food insecurity played out um, in the UK in, in recent years? So it's interesting is that they haven't really. Okay. Even though we've seen over the last decade, a alarming rise in the use of food banks and food poverty and increased rates of food uh, insecurity among households and individuals, there hasn't been, at least until the pandemic, a major debate over this. We've seen alarming rates of increase, particularly of obesity. And again, of course, there have been debates. We've had issues like whether we should have a sugar tax, but this hasn't been at the forefront of discussion. And even more uh, kind of troubling or kind of surprising is that Brexit, as we might discuss soon, which has impacts on food security and food more generally in the UK, food was not at the forefront of Brexit debates. The only real food related issue that was part of Brexit debates was fishing and fishing rights, whereas fishing only contributes a small percentage 
of total food production consumption in the UK. Okay, yeah, it was. It has been interesting seeing that play out, hasn't it? The the kind of focus on on fishing as a, as a core um, part of the narrative around Brexit, um, and obviously you can see why it's important to the people involved, right? <laughs> um, and obviously issues around like, fishing and overfishing. It's not that they're not important, but um, obviously it's... it was mostly about sovereignty rather than food security. Yeah, sure. I always found. Um, with relation to the pandemic, a similar thing around discussions of like within the British psyche around around the pub, right? Like whether like this focus on should the pubs close at ten, should they close at eleven? You know, like, I, 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 it was it had a particular clearly the pub has a particular place in the British psyche, um, and maybe I, I, I saw crudely some parallels. Um, no, no, but you're right about that. I mean, the the. The relevance put to fishing, at least in the negotiation phase of Brexit, clearly the final deal did not take into account the, the promises made to many fishermen, and we can talk about that later, yeah? but the central element that fishing did play in the negotiation is completely detached from its actual contribution to, to the state's GDP and to, to food consumption and food production. Yeah, indeed. Um, okay, so just one final um, question as kind of set in the the kind of tenor and um, concepts that we're going to be engaging with. Could you just give listeners uh, an explanation of what the just-in-time food model is? I mean, it, in certain sense, it sort of is what it says on the tin, but just to kind of give listeners a sense of what it is before we move on to discussing it. One later. of the elements I've mentioned in my article, which is relevant both to the pandemic, and I think most listeners will, when I explain a bit more, when you talk about the pandemic, will be very familiar with this, but also to Brexit and what might happen after Brexit. So the JIT or just-in-time module is a marvel of so you say, modern economies and logistics. Basically, it refers to the practice of integrating and maximizing uh, your supply chain to ensure deliveries are brought when they're needed. And as a consequence, reduce the amount you require for storage. And some storage, even the supermarkets, there's a massive cost for them, cold storage, in particular. So in the UK, UK supermarkets have really adopted with relish the just-in-time module and are probably at the forefront of uh, implementing it. And as a consequence, it also means that it is one of the reasons why food in the UK is among the cheapest per household in the world. Roughly about only about 8% of household expenses pre-pandemic or on, on food, this takes this does not include uh, eating out, but eight percent is exceptionally low, and this is average across households in the UK. But it also means that supermarkets keep only a minimum amount of food, particularly fresh food. For most supermarkets, we're talking about supplies, depending on the type of fresh food, of between one to five days in stock. So, if there's any massive disruption to the supply chain, this could result in less food on the shelves or in rapidly increasing food prices. Oh, okay. Wow. So, and I suppose there's parallels in, like, so the kind of just-in-time model um, of it, there's other industries that kind of are clothing, right, where it, it's also used. But I suppose that, like, if someone can't buy a new T-shirt, it's not necessarily going to <laughs> be a, I mean, for a particular business, it's important, but it's not right necessarily business uh, problem for the society as a whole in the short term, whereas if the food stocks are only one to five days, then that clearly 
can be. Um, and I'll, uh, something else interesting you mentioned there was so if it, so on average it's eight percent of income then so that presumably means for significant portions of the population it's significantly less than that as well which um, would be and for a significant portion it's, it's higher more. yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah there's the the, the two ends of the of but I think on what's interesting is on average we pay far less in this country for foods particularly fresh produce than most other developing countries okay all right and how during the last year, so I guess, I mean, we're pretty much at a year since lockdown now. Um, yeah. So just over a year since Italy went into lockdown and we're almost where the UK did. Um, how have debates around insecurity and food in, and food insecurity played out um, over the last year in the UK? So I think this is the first time in a decade where food issues became central or at least the forefront of public discussions. And I can probably think of four reasons for that. The first is simply the experience many of us had in the first few weeks of the first lockdown of going to the supermarket. First of all, encountering massive queues to get in. And then when you get in, seeing empty shelves. Massive panic buying. Now, important to mention here yeah, that much of this panic buying and lack of food on shelves had nothing to do with food stocks. So there was a, it's not as if there was no food. <laughs> but there was a huge panic in terms of whether food will be available. Those first few weeks were a bit of a, a shock to many of us. I think also a shock to supermarkets, which were not expecting this onslaught on, on, uh, on, on the product. Yeah? So I think that's the first thing. And many families which never thought of themselves as being food insecure came to supermarkets and couldn't find products. And I have many neighbors who asked us for things like toilet paper, milk, eggs, bread, because they couldn't find in the supermarket. I think that's the first thing. So it became a, a huge discussion. Where's the food? How do you get food? What's the price of food? The second thing, and also directly as a consequence of the pandemic, has been a very steep increase in the people using food banks and food charities. And there's many reasons for this. Yeah? Changes to benefits, loss of income, um, uh, no ability to access benefits if you initially were self-employed or you were EU migrant who only spent a, a short period of time here and, and many reasons connected to that. And I think for many households who might have lost their job early on in the lockdowns before different schemes came in, this was the first realization of becoming food insecure, which I think for many was, was, was shocking. I know from my own work with a number of food charities, that the amount of food provided as a food aid to food banks and food charities more than doubled, in some cases tripled or quadrupled during the pandemic. Yeah, so a lot more people became food insecure. And we, if we think about it for a second, as links to the third point, people received food aid in many different ways before the pandemic. So for one, one example, people who also children is free school meals. Now there's been a bit of discussion, particularly among uh, groups on the left in Labour, for example, about the need to expand free free, uh, free school meals. It's something that Cor Corbyn talked about, but it didn't come to the national uh, front or the debate. The debate didn't come to the, to the front of the. So the discussion did not come to the front of the national debate until the pandemic, because all of a sudden kids did not have access to free school meals. And what happens on holiday times? Will they still get access to it? So all of a sudden we had the government initially flip-flopping a number of times over what and where to provide aid 
We had a national campaign led by Marcus Rashford, the footballer for Manchester United, which I think, again, put the issues of food security at the forefront of the national debate. I think the last point is Brexit. Discussions about Brexit before the pandemic, during the pandemic, we've all understood that there is a connection one way or another between Brexit and food prices, food availability and food security. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, um, I think Marcus Rashford might be the most mentioned person on this podcast. <laughs> he comes up as, a, I mean, what, what an, an articulate, incredible guy. Right? I'm also clearly an amazingly talented footballer, but um, despite the fact that I'm a Liverpool fan, but um, he's, you know, really, I mean, really, as you think of, I often wonder, are we going to be talking about in 10 years time, Marcus Rashford running to be an MP and in 20 years time, Marcus Rashford um, for, for PM or Chancellor, I mean, you can... Why not? Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, you could yeah. see the, the narrative moving forward. Um, you know, Mayor, Mayor of Manchester, maybe. Um, but yeah, okay. And so you ended on Brexit there. So um, would you like to expand a little bit more where Brexit fits into this picture? Sure. So I think, first of all, something positive about Brexit. I don't have much positive to say about Brexit. <laughs> yeah, I, I acknowledge that I'm very biased on this topic, but I can say with some degree of, of certainty and knowledge that one of the reasons that supermarkets responded so well to the early food panic buys, now I have to caveat that because I'm sure for many food insecure households, the first few days or first few weeks of, of lockdown were not successful and many of them struggle to access food, particularly if they lived in a in, in, in more deprived area where there was, where there was only one or none of the major supermarket branches there. So they might not be able to get anything. But overall, supermarkets responded very well to the early onslaught and early panic buys. And one of the main reasons put forward is the no deal planning done by supermarkets. So they were expecting in the event of a no-deal Brexit, massive uh, lorry queues in Kent, huge disruption to food supplies, and they put a lot of mitigating responses to deal with that. And that really helped supermarkets during the pandemic, even though this was not the initial intention yet. But yeah. So they were planning for something else, but it came in handy in another round. It came very handy, yeah. Yeah, okay, all right. Because the issue was not, there is no food, the issue is, how to move food to where it's required at a different uh, pace and how to ensure enough stocks are available at different supermarkets. This is where the just-in-time model, they had to make adjustments to it because supermarkets themselves did not hold the amount of food that all of a sudden was required of them. The food was somewhere, but not there. So it had to be brought in. I think there's a number of broad areas we can think about how food security could be impacted by, by Brexit. I think the first thing is to think about the fact that we import much of our food either from the EU or through the EU. So any changes to our trade with food with the EU directly affect food security in the UK. I think you can easily see it in the mess we currently have in Northern Ireland. I say a mess, it's a mess in terms of political mess, in terms of where the border or the invisible border lies, between Northern Ireland and Ireland, between uh, the, uh, Britain and, and Northern Ireland. 
and also the political and democratic uh, debates about sovereignty and rights and if the EU is imposing a border or whether the government acknowledged and accepted the border in the deal it signed, but also a mess in terms of the difficulties many food producers and importers and exporters are facing in dealing with Northern Ireland. We know that many supermarkets are not providing the same range of products in Northern Ireland as they are in the rest of the UK. We're also knowing that many food producers and export and imports are having difficulties dealing with Northern Ireland because of additional non-tariff barriers on trade. Now, in the deal we signed with the EU, one of the main discussion points has always been about tariffs. The direct financial costs added to exports and imports. But one thing we don't talk much about, but actually Brexit has now brought it to the discussion, is non-tariff barriers. We think about regulations, rules, like rules of origins. We're thinking about things like uh, customs checks or general um, health checks for, for products, whether they're live, fresh or otherwise. And we're looking at how complicated our supply chains are and what does it mean to have all these checks and rules and regulations applied to them. And in short, because we apply a just-in-time model, any delays to our supply chains directly affect us and any additional cost directly affect us. And in that regard, something very interesting has happened, which I think most listeners are not familiar with or aware of, but I think it's quite... For me, it's surprising and also kind of shocking in many ways. The EU has applied its rules on UK produce by and large. So UK exports to the EU are facing delays, are facing additional costs. However, UK imports from the EU are not currently facing much checks and much non-tariff barriers. Now, the whole debate about Brexit has been about sovereignty, but the government has decided for the time being to postpone any implementations on checks. Oh, because it would delay. And the EU, yeah. Oh, now, okay. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know that. So what's interesting is that British exporters are now facing a penalty to export into, uh, to, into the EU. And you can clearly see that we talk about fishing. Seafood exporters have been pulverized is a nice word, yeah. I've been shocked by what Brexit has entailed for them exporting live product into the EU and having to suffer great losses. And many of them Scottish seafood yeah, producers. Sure. But you, uh, EU exporters exporting food into the UK have not suffered the same because the British government has decided, and there's two reasons we can talk about, to postpone any such implementation. One we can say is because they can see that this will directly impact food prices and food availability and chose for the time being not to have this hit during the pandemic, but to slowly phase it in. Others say there's simply not enough infrastructure. We Brexited, but there aren't the infrastructure to impose these checks and, 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 um, and, and regulations on EU imports. Well, I mean, that's fair enough. It's not like there was over four years between the vote and leaving the transition <laughs> period, right? There was no time to <laughs> develop an infrastructure. I mean, you're definitely right about that. Yeah. So we didn't, 
the infrastructure, both in terms of the digital infrastructure and the physical infrastructure, and if you want, the human infrastructure is not there, but might be there in the future. Others say that maybe Britain will simply avoid applying any of these rules because we didn't apply these rules a, a year ago. Why apply these rules now? In, in what way do we benefit from applying additional barriers on trade with the EU? I mean, there are complications because, let's not get into the details here, but for the time being, Britain is not applying any of these rules. So we're not facing any of the impacts that Brexit could have had on food. The one area where we might face some of the impacts is to do with farming and subsidies. So one of the interesting things about Brexit has been that there's never been, and I've written about it in a different article, which I'm very happy to, to provide if you want on, on for the page. Yeah, yeah absolutely. A very clear policy of what British food policy will be after Brexit. There's been a lot of debates in the Parliament and a number of papers being brought forward. But there is no clear direction. One of the areas is farming and what kind of future farming Britain wants to have. What kind of subsidies does it want to provide British farmers? I mean, some movements in the direction of producing something called like a green Brexit, of providing subsidies in return for farmers being good stewards of the environment. The question is, how much does the government really believe in that and is going to push for that? And a lot of that is to do with the kind of deals they might sign with other countries. Okay, well, th so that's uh, very neatly um, leads us on to something else that I wanted to discuss, which was the kind of, I mean, much vaunted, I suppose, uh, free trade deals that the government, um, the UK government claims that it is signing and will continue to sign and roll out um, in the forthcoming years and months. So where, where do they fit in, into this picture? I think they're very important for two reasons. One is that Britain makes a lot of how the reduced trade with the EU, and we've seen massive drops in trade over the last few months now, of course, many of them, much of it's to do with, with, with COVID, but we will see reduced trade with Europe. That's simply a byproduct of Brexit. That the reduced trade will be more than made up with trade with other countries. And in the past, it was about the US and China. Now China's been sidelined. It's more about the US and a number, particularly in terms of food, a number of leading food exporters. Normally we talk about as the part of the Kearns group, Brazil, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. The type of deals Britain will sign with these countries will tell us a lot about what kind of future food policy the country pursues. So for example, some of the questions we might ask are, will the UK favor bring in cheaper food from elsewhere, which might be very difficult for British producers to compete against, and in particular, cheaper imports produced through practices which are currently banned in the UK, either use of GMO, certain pesticides, or antibiotic uh, um, uh, growth hormones for for beef, or the famous um, chlorinated uh, <laughs> chicken. Yeah. And if Britain does allow lower standards or different standards, what does that mean for British producers and consumers? Because who buys these lower standards? And you would imagine that these products will be cheaper 
and probably aimed at more vulnerable groups in the UK, who for them, a change in prices will be something uh, useful. Because even if on average, the UK only spends 8% on food, for some household, it's much, much higher. And for them, cheaper food will be an important element. So if the government's producing cheaper food to lower standards, and there's a lot of debates on these standards. Some people think that this is a, a storm in a teacup. These standards don't actually have a huge health impact. Others disagree with this point. But there's a debate of how this will impact consumers. But also, and it's something that's less debate, is that if you provide cheaper food from elsewhere, which will be very difficult for British producers to compete against, what does that mean for British own self-sufficiency and its own farming system? One of the main fears, and this is a number of experts have, have, have put this forward, is that the government might, might pursue a two-tier food approach, which will accept lower food standards and cheaper food from across the world, but endeavor that British producers produce food for higher standards, which will also be more expensive. So Britain will export better or uh, higher quality, higher standard quality food, which also appeal to a middle and upper classes in the UK, but will import to solve its food security problems cheaper and lower standard foods from the rest of the world. Okay, so essentially creating like a dual, dual, two almost completely separate food systems catering to different parts of the internal and external markets. Okay, that, that um, I mean, I mean this just, because we don't know. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Where it could go lead to, yeah. Of course, yeah. Um, and can, we're thinking about the pandemic, like we've been talking about Brexit with relation to the pandemic. So to switch it round the other way now, can the events, do the events of the pandemic uh, suggest anything about how Brexit might uh, impact, um, impact food security and security moving forward? Definitely. I think there's several elements. I think, first of all, it was a good wake-up call to food importers and exporters. And I, th I think it will, in the long run, help them navigate through the difficulties of Brexit, at least for, for, for the larger supermarket chains. If you want, it was a test trial of what a no-deal Brexit looked like, and they've passed it. So I think they're, they're far more comfortable with whatever changes will now occur. Of course, for smaller producers and middle-sized companies, it is still very complicated, and they're still currently struggling as a consequence of Brexit. I think at the household level, I think it is tells us quite a number of different things. I think it's which is important at government and local level uh, governments to think about. One is that food security issues at the household level have direct impacts on healthcare. So we need to think very clearly, and this is something the pandemic has demonstrated, how to ensure that people in the UK have sufficient food in terms of the quantity, but also in terms of the quality, in terms of the nutritious quality of the food they're consuming. Because we now clearly understand the direct impacts that our food consumption habits and diets have on our health and the impact that has on our healthcare systems. I think that's something that was not, of course, many healthcare professionals knew this, but I think now it's known at a national level. And I think particularly on this issue of the national level, 
what's clear is that food aid provision during the pandemic was very much ad hoc. And maybe there will be now a much wider realization of the need to integrate different provisions and think more clearly about how to provide food aid. So for example, I volunteer with, with, with a particular food charity and what I've known, I've noticed as a consequence of, of pandemic is that food charities and local councils have better coordinated their activities to respond to food security problems in a way which they did not do before the pandemic. And maybe a lot of lessons learned could then be used to better tackle this issue after the pandemic passes. I think the last thing is that tells us that, particularly in relation to Brexit, we need to be very clear about what actually are we trying to achieve in terms of food security and where we're going with our, for example, free trade agreements. And I think one of the problems with Brexit, and it's clearly at the beginning of the pandemic, we've also seen it, is the lack of a clear policy. And the pandemic has demonstrated the need for clarity and integrated thinking about how to bring things together. And hopefully this will manifest itself post-Brexit. Sorry, post-pandemic. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Ronald. Um, and so thinking of, I guess, moving things back up to the, the kind of the broadest level and turning towards reflections on kind of democracy and politics, um, what are some of the kind of broader high-level implications of this? And is every, I mean, I, I guess we, I, I could always say with some certainty that everyone isn't equally affected, but how do those unequal implications play out? And then finally related to, to those first two questions, how, how does this, why does this matter in the context of, um, of politics and democracy? I think to start with about who is affected, of course, COVID and food security affect all of us. And we're now aware of it. But you write to suggest or imply that it doesn't affect all of us equally. And it's very clear that food security issues, but also in many ways, the impacts of the pandemic have been much harsher on more vulnerable groups and any future changes would affect them more adversely than others. And these are also groups which have probably the least amount of political power, representation and voice in our current systems. And I think the pandemic has demonstrated, which I hope something that this current government will take on afterwards, that unless that we are all in this together and unless everyone is safe, then no one is safe. And forgetting about certain groups is not a positive recipe for future uh, relations and security in the UK. So hopefully this is a, learn, a lesson learned and hopefully the, it will manifest in hopefully either reformed or lack of hard, or hard austerity measures in the years to come. I think it also, in terms of politics and democracy, tell something very odd about Brexit. And again, sorry for coming back to Brexit, but I think- Oh no, that's fine. <laughs> is that we have a very strange situation where those who advocated or had the loudest voices for Brexit pushed for something, the whole idea of um, of the Singapore on the Thames for a vision of Britain 
which most of those who supported Brexit, but also the more the general population, very much against. They did not want to live in a, a low standard, low regulated, low taxed uh, free trading economy. And clearly we've seen with the pandemic and food security issues, the importance of clear regulations and standards. I think also in terms of austerity, there's clearly a difference between some of the voices you might hear now or in the past in the Tory party and what most of the British public wanted. In many ways, maybe the fact that the current government enjoys a majority, which to an extent relies on former red wall constituencies might imply taking their voices far more into account. Voices which want greater public services and are happy to accept higher taxes on higher uh, earners than the more traditional uh, Tory voters. And I think it also given us an opportunity, the pandemic, to rethink more broadly what kind of a society we want. So if I, if I stick particularly to food security and food, what kind of food do we want to eat? Where do we want to import it? How do we, what value do we place on British farming, on British products? on British standards. So for example, there's a whole debate within the Tory party about Brexit and its future. And one wing of the party, people like George Eustace, or to extend also Michael, Michael Gove, envision a green Brexit where Britain will be a leading country in the world in terms of high food standards, high regulations, you know, great care of the environment, where some other factions in the party have a very different vision of Britain. So I think hopefully this will have broader implications and will matter in terms of politics at the national level. Yeah. Michael Gove, could we could like the, the whole foods Brexit, right? The <laughs> high quality, um, yeah, high, high quality food uh, or, or organic or um, and related terms and concepts. Uh, okay. And so just before we wrap up, um, looking further forward, um, and I this is kind of looking into the future and so any you know predictions we won't hold you to them but just wondered where you see things going um, around the issues that we've touched upon today my biggest fear is that this government and also its predecessors never had a clear strategic plan in terms of food security for this country if you say even more broadly they never had a clear plan for brexit and if you want, with regards to the COVID pandemic, they didn't even have a clear plan for the pandemic. And it, it seems that they're kind of plodding along, ad hoc, making it up. If you've seen a number of, on food security issues, number of flip-flopping over free school meals, for example, which I think was, was a no-brainer. And everyone saw, for those who are familiar with the story, that the government will eventually climb down on this. But why did it take so long for it to happen? I think it didn't take so long because there was no clear policy to begin with. So I think this lack of forward thinking, I think is something I'm worried about. And I'm hoping that the pandemic has been a kind of a huge wake up call to rethink very carefully about food security, particularly in line of Brexit. And there's a number of questions I'm, I'm thinking about and I'm hoping the government is thinking about, about what kind of standards they want to have what kind of impulse do they want to bring? What kind of relationship does Britain actually want with the EU? We've seen in recent week very adversarial relationships, which directly affect food security issues. How are we going to support going forward after the pandemic the most vulnerable? 
in this particular uh, policy area with regards to food, but you can think more broadly about how, how we support them. And this has implications to issues like malnutrition, obesity, and healthcare. Hopefully, the pandemic has been a wake up call that will push us in the right direction. Although, looking at this government, I have my doubts. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, yeah, the three school meals issue, I mean, it just became something really easy for either because they people believed in kind of kids getting food, right? But also if people strategically wanted to attack the government, it's just a really easy, like who's going to argue against giving um, vulnerable children food? Like, I mean, it's just a, it, it, it was, a, it's a strange, and it, it, I think you've seen similar kind of failures of lack of forward thinking around the A-level results. I mean, that was like, you know, the, there's been so much material now that people were warning Gavin Williamson and those below him that this was coming, uh, that that issue was coming for, for time. The interesting point is that I think there's the pandemic which causes, because many people are not aware, unless it directly affects them, of how many uh, youth clubs and after-school activities which were shut down because of austerity measures. Many of these activities and centres and charities provided kids with either a hot meal after school or at least some snacks after school. Removing that implied even further food security burdens on uh, poor households. I think now oh, people so are realising... It wasn't realizing just a place to go. It was a, there was like a wraparound care, like pastoral kind of add-ons that, yeah, you wouldn't be aware of unless you were directly affected by it. Oh, okay. All right. Um, and so just before we stop recording, is there any other kind of final points you wanted to make or anything we haven't touched on that you were keen to highlight? No, I guess the, the general point is that the one positive, at least for this area, that has come out of COVID is the greater policy relevance of food security and realisation of its impact. It's very hard to find many positive things about COVID. Sure, indeed. Hopefully this will be used, if you want, as a positive thing going forward. Okay, all right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast again, Ronald. It was an absolute oh, pleasure to, dis to discuss this with you. Mm -hmm.